This podcast is made possible by supporters like you. Mahalo. And by Atlas Insurance Agency, Hawaii's largest professional agency, helping Hawaii navigate insurance solutions since 1929. More at atlasinsurance.com. Hello, my kako. Welcome to a new episode of What School You Went, where we start every conversation with that question. I'm Ron Mizutani, and today we're going to be talking about what some consider was Hawaii's first serial killer, and he was billed as and named the Honolulu Strangler. I am very pleased to welcome back to the program Robbie Dingman. Robbie, welcome back to PBS Hawaii. Thanks for stepping away from your from your day job to, to share and reminisce. Uh, Thank you. I've, and, it's always you know, good to talk tell about Tell us how, what you're doing these days. And, you know, as you look back at your reporting experience, how is it helping you in this new role? Well, not new role, but in your role today. Well, now I'm fortunate to be editor-at-large at Honolulu Magazine, where I write a lot of our feature stories, and I work with a small but scrappy team of talented people. So we like to try to, you know, give an idea of what our, what our city's like. So we write about some serious issues, social issues, and then we still get to do some fun food, fashion and fun events and trends in the community. So it's a mixture, but we do get to go a little more in depth. And uh, that's one of the things that I was fortunate, like you, to have worked at KHON, and I worked at the newspapers, uh, both the Star Bulletin and the Advertiser. So I feel like our we were in journalism at a very good time when journalism was expanding and journalism, we, we had a good crew of people who tried our best to uh, cover the news well and cover the news accurately. And we didn't have the opinion things that happen as much now, I, I yeah. think. So I believe that, you know, all of our lives prepare us for where we're at now. I couldn't say, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and you're being very modest. We had the best news team in town, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, we had Barbara Marshall. We had Ann Botticelli, yourself, Jim McCoy, uh, you know, Chris. I mean, just if you go down the whole line. Of, oh, yeah. Chris of, Every day was a battle. Yeah, every- Every day was a battle. Every, Chris Parsons, everybody thought they their story was the lead. Right? We did. We it battled was a for it. We were like, what do you mean she's got it? I want that. Right? I, I've got the top story. My story is the best story. It, you know, it was good times, but that made for good journalism. It really did. And, and you I, think about it, it only was one newscast. Well, six yeah, and ten. Six so and we ten. only had two newscasts back then. Now they have newscasts every hour. Uh, but yeah, so good, <laughs> good times. And again, journalism uh, back then was very solid. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll welcome you back one day. We'll talk food, <laughs> but I know I've been I've been talking a lot of crime, and that's because you covered the police beat. You also authored a couple of books, uh, co-authored as well. Uh, you know, and one of them talked about the Honolulu Strangler. Now take us back because <clears throat> prior to that, and there was a lot going on at that time, but the first victim, if you will, and there were five of them, was a, was a woman named Vicky Purdy. And I'm going to respectfully say all five of these young women's names because they should be honored and 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 remembered rather in, in a very respectful way. But the first victim was Vicky Purdy. Take us back to what happened, and and we'll go through uh, the, the chronological of this, including uh, who the prime suspect was. So this was the '80s. And uh, Vicki Gail Purdy, she was 25. She'd been living in Mililani. Her husband was in the military. He flew helicopters for the Army. And she worked at a video rental place. She was petite, but they described her as tiny but fierce. And she uh, had um, come with her husband in the military. And uh, so she was the first victim. And, of course, because she was the first victim, uh, 
there was some attention given to the crime, but she was someone with fewer local ties. And uh, the way the news business works is when you can talk with family who kind of describes more of what the person is like, then you have a broader portrait, I think, of a victim. So at that time, I don't, you know, we didn't know as much about it. And uh, they had had, uh, I guess, what seemed like more of an open marriage that, that came out. So they dated other people. They didn't have kids. So she, her body was found. Uh, she'd gone to Waikiki mm-hmm. and she'd gone nightclubbing, but her husband said he, she wasn't fooling around. It wasn't, it was something that was, they both knew about it, but he uh, didn't hear anything back. And he, that was unusual. She would usually call if she was going to stay out late. The, her body was found the next day. Mm-hmm. She had been raped. She had been strangled and dumped off of Kehi Lagoon. Right. That was back in 1984. And, and then, like you said, it was the, the first case. So there was very little uh, to really analyze at the time. Uh, and it, it, frankly, the case went cold for a couple of years. Sure. And while no one discounts anyone's life and no one ever Absolutely. should. Yes. Of the fact that she had fewer local ties and the fact that um, she had had what he termed a more adventurous lifestyle, I think initially people might have thought, oh, well, perhaps she, um, as sad as that is, perhaps she put herself in harm's way. And so without the ties and her husband got transferred and moved away, there wasn't as much attention put on it. And, And as you know, we all see in the crime shows, there's a lot of evidence in the first few days. So if nothing really develops as far as a hard lead in the beginning, it's often very difficult to go back at a cold case. And this was back in 1984. So, I mean, less tools at the time for HPD and detectives. So until January 14th, 1986, that's when things changed because there was a second victim. The next victim was Regina Sakamoto. She was a teenager, right? Yep, 17, Lelihua High School, senior, and at the bus stop. That's... And, and very petite, very pretty. Um, those, we didn't, again, we didn't know as much about her because it's such a tragedy. Her family didn't really want to talk. Understandably, they were so shaken by her death. But the people we did speak with, or the reporters did, I, I didn't cover that one myself. The people who did speak with, uh, people who knew her just described her as, you know, regular kid, doing her work, gentle, quiet. Her body was found in the same location. Yes. In Kehi Lagoon, or close to Kehi Lagoon. Close to Kehi Lagoon. Same MO. And that's when police started to believe, or at least thought, we may have a serial killer in our hands. Or was it that early in the process, do you recall? They started to notice something because, I'm, I'm sorry, at the risk of being a, a bit graphic, one of the things that would tell them that someone was strangled was they have little dots petechial hemorrhaging. So although someone might, she was fortunately discovered in in a timely manner uh, that they could see the evidence of strangling and then they they put it into the database as strangling. And there had been another case of a woman who had been murdered, which was never connected to the Honolulu Strangler case, Mm -hmm. but they had definitely looked at it. But the they might have thought something after Regina Sakamoto's death, but definitely two weeks later, right. on February 1st, 1986, that's when three kids who were fishing along a drainage canal in Mapunapuna, that's when they opened a tarp 
and they found another body. And that was Denise Hughes, right? Uh, she was found two weeks later, a 21-year-old. Yes, and at that time we found out her hands had been tied behind her back, and she had been strangled. Same and MO. that was when we found out. Same, same yeah. MO as, as HPD would say, or law enforcement. And then it started to really escalate. Um, and and the seven weeks later is what I was told. The fourth victim was discovered, or her body was found. Uh, uh, Louise Medeiros, right? Yes. And uh, she had been uh, living in Waipahu. She'd had kind of some rough times in her life, left home as a teenager, didn't finish school, spent a lot of her time wandering. She'd been to Kauai for a while where she'd gone, sadly, for the reading of her mother's will. She lived in Makaha for a while, but she would catch the bus at night. It's something that her family members had warned her about, that that was not a good thing to do. And especially she would be by the airport because she was still going back and forth to see family on Kauai. And she had, in fact, done that. She flew home to Oahu saying that she was going to catch a bus from the airport to her apartment. And um, she was a single mom. She was petite also, and later on, they, it was revealed she was, she was three months pregnant when she was oh murdered. That's yeah, right. But again, her hands were tied behind her back. But the first time we were officially noticed, notified as the news media at the time was shortly before her um, death, and that was when then-police major Chester Hughes had put together a task force to examine the similarities. And he was... Very closed mouth about what he was talking about, but the the police were worried enough that they wanted to tell to tell us something about that. And you know, I mean, especially from back in the day when I was first a reporter, you know, please they, they <laughs> they tell you as little as possible. <laughs> That's right. You can spend twenty minutes talking to somebody, who, right. and then you realize they told me nothing. Yeah, they have the same police jargon. I used to joke around with my HPD friends, and you know, the perpetrator was heading westbound on Makai Street and all that stuff. But you know what? It was their way of making sure that. Nothing was uh, compromised in any way. Right, and for the police, that's the thing they want to do is they they might they might tell us the 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 victims were their hands were tied behind their back, but they don't want to tell us what the um, rope was used or cord right. or in this case zip ties, which eventually did come out. They didn't want to tell us that. But this, see, so this was another victim who died in the same manner, using public transportation, if you will. And there were a lot of folks nervous already by then. I mean, you had four women who had died were killed rather um and some of them were all at a bus stop or or thought to be using public transportation and police were alerting folks about oh yeah just being aware I, I, you were too young i think at the time but uh, i remember going to a uh, <laughs> night meetings where the police were going out to the community to say here's what you can do self-defense classes people started taking self-defense classes the rooms were packed with people trying mm -hmm. to find out what they could do it was Again, it was something, it seemed like it would only happen somewhere else, like in a big city. And Honolulu is not the kind of place where people are, someone is stalking women and murdering them and then dumping their bodies in such a, a terrible and disrespectful way. And so it really sent chills through all of us. And not to mention, this was right about Lisa Owl's disappearance. And we had, uh, of course, Diane Suzuki. Um, so pe people were on high alert. Yeah, people would tell, I mean, because I was in the age group and would drive, you know, uh, to stories and come back at night. I mean, people would definitely 
have all of us checking in. You, you call before cell phones, right? right. <laughs> and then the cell phones got were large and cumbersome, yeah. the bricks and stuff <laughs> bricks, like that. Yes. So people would have you call when you left, call when you arrived. People would, if you suspected something was funny going on, you instead of pulling over for a police, even a police officer, what you thought might be a, a plainclothes police officer, you were told, we were told, just drive to the police station or you fire station. You were told station. by HPD. Yeah, yeah HPD to, to said, so. if you're nervous, don't stop. Because there was this, it was a very scary time all of a sudden. And it did seem to come from, um, we came from a more innocent time. I mean, we we knew things, bad things happen, of course, anywhere you live. But it was like, we didn't really think that was the kind of place we lived in. And suddenly it was happening in here. So a month after uh, Louise Medeiros was found, her body was found, on April 29th, the fifth victim, Linda Pesci, was found. Uh, tell us a little bit about Linda Pesci. So she was the one who was older, a little bit different from the rest of them. She was 36. She was a um, businesswoman uh, working for, then this dates the time, she was working for Macaw Telepage because back then we used pagers. And uh, she had left work 6.30. She had been promoted. So she was happy about that. So she was in a good place. She wasn't having a difficult time. So she definitely seemed different. And then police found her car. It was parked near Nimitz Highway, the viaduct, and again near the airport. But the car had its emergency flashers on by about 7 o'clock that night. And Again, family described her kind of in some ways like the first victim, like Vicky Gale Purdy, somebody who kind of held their own, somebody who was kind of bold and would mm -hmm. take care of herself and was kind of unconventional. And she, you know, held her own. Again, she she was petite. She was only five foot four. And I say that as someone who's five foot two, so that's a little tall for me. But uh, <laughs> she was, um, again, she was found by people fishing. They were fishing for squid and someone found her body. And again, the she... Her hands had been tied behind her back. So we have five victims now, five five women who were killed. And um, one of the, uh, there was, in that final case with Pesci, the, the, a witness saw a light-colored van nearby and possibly a Caucasian man near the vehicle. Uh, several days later, after her disappearance, uh, a, a man matching the witness's description walked into HPD Claiming a psychic told him where they could find Pesci's body? I mean, it was, uh, again, like you said, they had heard, there had been people telling about the van. And then before that, the uh, police had also called in the FBI's behavioral science unit. And then at the time, they, the FBI unit did describe that the, the likely characteristics would be this was an opportunist. This mm -hmm. is someone who is stalking a certain type of person. They were probably looking for people in an area that they were familiar with near their work or near their home. And that's why they believed that they that person would have been from or worked in Sand Island or Waipahu because every all the five bodies were found in that general area. And that he had also the uh, unit had also said it would not be someone with a police record, but it might be someone who had marital problems or problems with a girlfriend. Six days after Linda Pesci's body was found, on May 9th, police arrested a 43-year-old Caucasian man on suspicion of killing her. And like you said, he came in at night. It was about 8 o'clock. And he let, people, he let the police photograph him. He took a polygraph examination, which he failed. 
and he seemed defensive. After about, well, I remember when the detectives told us it was about three o'clock in the morning when he went in, Louis Souza, when mm -hmm. he went into the interview room and said, if he says he's tired, we should stop because you have to be careful if you're not coercing someone by um, not giving them water, not letting them stop. Yes. Yeah. So he asked them about it. And he said at the time that the suspect just hung his head and crossed his hands across his chest. And then he said he didn't do it. But the, the, Louis Souza told him, go ahead and arrest him. So they did arrest him, but they had not charged him yet. So at that point, I was working at the Star Bulletin. And it, at the time, we did not, news media at the time usually did not name someone if a suspect yes. had been arrested but not charged. Mm -hmm. But in this case, there was such a great interest in this case that had locked the community in a kind of fear that we actually broke that policy, talked to the attorneys, and named him Howard Gay as being arrested as a suspect. Uh, I know Louis told me years later when we when we worked on the book that he thought the suspect was was on the brink of breaking and saying what happened, but while he was resting and in the cell block that the his attorney came and then there were he blamed the inexperienced recruits on the desk because he said they just let him in whereas they could have waited they could have said no you can't see him yet you know he has one call they could have gone through all of those things and when he came, the attorney talked to him. He said, the attorney told the suspect, Howard Gay, I've been retained by your girlfriend, so I don't want you to talk to the police anymore. So he stopped talking. That was another mistake because he could have asked to use the phone, but the police didn't have to honor somebody calling up. You can't just call up the police cell block and say, hey, my cousin's inside there. I right. want to talk to him. You can't do that. So he was released 10 hours later. And the police turned in what they had, and they thought they had enough to charge, but the prosecutors didn't agree. So that went away. Yep. And he would die, uh, never being charged for the murders. Yep. He moved to California, as I understood it, and died there. Yeah. And no one else was murdered in the same fashion or way after that last victim. So this... Honolulu Strangler becomes notorious as people Probably. are convinced was the first serial killer. Yeah, yeah. In, in I mean, in modern times, we right. obviously don't know if before. Right. Uh, that's that's chilling, but and it I is. know that a lot of um, I know a lot of crime shows focus on that that particular. You 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 have that in the book that you wrote, co-wrote, right? Yeah, we. I mean, we. It was such a pivotal case. Actually, that's one of the chapters that I wrote more than than uh, my co-author Gary Diaz because. I had covered the from portions of it. We covered different things. And one of the reasons we wrote the book together was that we looked at things so differently that it was an opportunity yeah. to um, to kind of gang team up on it and mm -hmm. then write about it. And that was such a, I mean, people had, um, some of the organizations had put together a reward for the um, finding the killer. I think it went up to $25,000 for information leading to an arrest and indictment of someone in the unsolved murders. I did think it was interesting that it was only in, it, it was only, I think in the last 10 years that it, the case has become known as the Honolulu Strangler. At the time, we all just called it the serial killer case. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to, I, I want to um, uh, say one more thing. The, his girlfriend at the time, you talk about uh, uh, 
relationship problems. But his girlfriend at the time, Mr. Gay, said when they would argue, he would disappear. And it was coincidental or not that his disappearance from the arguments were almost the same days, if not the same day of those of those killings. Yes. And the other things that linked it to the case yeah. was that he, at the time he worked for Flying Tigers, the cargo company. And um, the later on, it was determined that they were tied with zip ties. And it was something he would have had access to many of at his job. And he did, in fact, drive a van like that on occasion. And so there were other things. It wasn't just yeah. a little bit of circumstantial evidence. There well, was a fair amount of evidence that um, police took to the prosecutor at the time. They were convinced that they he, were convinced he, was, the, was, he yeah. was the guy. And, and the fact that it never, nothing like it happened again after that. And, you know, there were other things. He, she, um, he'd acknowledged that uh, Linda Pesci was trying to sell him a pager. Uh, they found uh, his name written on a pad on her desk. Oh, my. Yeah, so there was a lot of... But, I mean, I do hope that one of the things that's positive that, that did come out of the um, tragic death of these women is that people did check up on each other more mm-hmm. often. And then I know that it continued. It wasn't like, oh... This guy was arrested, so everybody stopped doing that. I think people were, are a lot more conscious of that. And yes, rest his soul. Um, Gary, was my ex-husband, and uh, he would definitely, whenever, if I ran a little bit late, I always make sure I call. And then at first I was like, you know, dude, you know I'm a reporter. And what do you, what do you think? And, you know, of course I, I'm going to run late sometimes. And somebody called me right at the end. And, he, and I was like, oh, that's right. You used to be in charge of homicide. So when somebody was late, they were dead. Okay, yeah. I got it. I got it. Got you know, it. Uh, I, I feel like it changed all of us, not just those directly involved, but yes. I feel like it did change our community. And I, I hope it changed us for looking out for another, uh, each other a little more closely than, and not just assuming that. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that, you know. All it takes is a quick phone call. Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm okay. Or, honey, I'm running late. It's all good. Well, thank you for sharing again, uh, uh, Robbie. Um, you know, again, uh, the Honolulu Strangler, one of the more notorious cases in Hawaii history of crime. And, um, boy, you, you've seen your share. Um, next time we're going to talk about maybe something like Manapua or Poke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, Ron. Uh, again, continued success to you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for do- thank you for doing this. I think it does help us all to talk about these things, the tough things, and to reflect on them. Yeah, I, I do believe that to be true. Malanune for joining us, folks. Join us next time for another episode of What School You Went. Until next time, ahuyo. What School You Went is a PBS Hawaii production. Music by Taimana Gardner. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell your friends. You can find us on pbshawaii.org and everywhere you get your podcasts.